The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org slash membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Welcome to The Planchet, the podcast of the American Numismatic Society. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt, and my guest today is numismatist and author Kathy Lorber, whose monumental new work, Coins of the Ptolemaic Empire Part II, Ptolemy V through Cleopatra VII, is now available to order. Lorber holds a bachelor's in classical Greek from UCLA, and she spent nearly 40 years as a cataloger in commercial numismatics from the early 1970s until her retirement in 2009. As an independent researcher, she specialized in the publication of coin hoards, as well as studies pertaining to North Greek, Thessalian, Judean, Seleucid, or Seleucid, and Ptolemaic coinages. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Kathy. Pleasure to be with you, Andrew. Sure. Um, so my first question to uh, get to know you a little bit better is um, I'm curious as to what drew you initially to numismatics. Did coins come first or did classics come first? Uh, classics came first. Uh, I had a TA at UCLA in my Roman history class uh, who was himself a numismatist, and he got me involved. Aha, uh-huh. well, that, <laughs> that's how it starts. You always you, you find that, that roguish individual saying, hey, you want to take a look at some coins? <laughs> and, and, and off you go. Is that how it happened? And, and you know, that's, that's how my whole career has gone, you know, just accidents that diverted me in a different direction. No, that's, I think that's a great way to live. Um, you know, in, 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 any uh, kind of singularity that you come up against where you can go left or you can go right, uh, and then you, know, you, just, you just take that road and, and see where it yeah. goes. Or sometimes you can, you can hang on to both roads. Well, that's true. Um, so you know, with coins and classics, what were you studying in classics, and what were the first coins that you were introduced to? Well, I was studying Greek language, basically. Uh, and the first coins I was introduced to, I'm sure, must have been Roman coins because uh, that was his interest. Uh, but ultimately, he took me to Joel. He worked for Joel Malter, a coin dealer in uh, Los Angeles at the time, and I started working for Joel Malter too. And there, I cataloged everything that came along. He was a specialist in ancient coins, so that meant Greek, Roman, and Byzantine, but nothing else. Uh, understood. Yeah. Um... One of my questions today was, was how did you discover the first cataloging job? And so you made this connection at UCLA, and then all of a sudden, uh, what was the interview like? Did you just you know come in and they're like, you know, read, read this Greek passage, <laughs> and you aced it and off you went? Or, or how did that work? Nothing so much. You know, he said, here's Kathy, you know, she can help you. <laughs> and, then, and then he, the, the TA, Bruce McNall, became my mentor and taught me. You know, we went through Historia Demorum on the on the Greek coins, and so with uh, with the cataloging uh, position, did did you work uh, for, for this person for the entire forty year span, or did you start there and then graduate to uh, you know a different company? Uh, a different, no, uh, I, I started there. Eventually, Bruce McNall uh, broke off and formed his own company, Numismatic Fine Arts. Uh, then his company in nineteen ninety four went bankrupt, but some of uh, my colleagues there at the time formed new company, uh, Freeman and Sear, 
Uh, and so I cataloged for Freeman and Sear, but another one of the former employees, Steve Rubinger, formed his own company, Antiqua. So for the last part of my career, I was cataloging for both of those groups. Uh, but neither one was full-time work. They would call me in when they had a price list or an auction to prepare. Uh, and in between, I worked on research, uh, you know, my personal research. And ultimately, what caused me to retire was the fact that it was so disruptive to go back and forth between intensively uh, doing commercial cataloging and then trying to figure out where I dropped my research and how to pick it up again. I finally decided the Ptolemaic book would never get finished if I didn't give up commercial cataloging. <laughs> so I did. Wow. Um, so be before we get into uh, into the Ptolemies, um, I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners uh, what exactly a commercial coin cataloger does. What's your, what was your day-to-day? -day? Uh, I'm presented with trays of coins, and I have to write descriptions uh, of what's on the coin, and then cite references where the same coin or similar coin is published. Uh, I was never interested in the values of coins. In fact, I always was a little bit uncomfortable with the buying and selling of what I considered to be precious data. Uh, so I never graded the coins. My uh, coin dealer colleagues did that, and they, of course, set the estimates. But other commercial catalogers, I must say, uh, don't have that particular limitation, and so they would probably grade the coins and perhaps add the estimates themselves. Do you recall any of the more notable coins um, that came across your desk when you're looking at trays and you just picked up one of these things and said, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm holding yeah, this? Yeah, year five shekel of, of the Jewish war. That one, you know, even though I was fairly jaded, that really gave me trembles. Wow. Um, so with, uh, with the transition full-time to research, um, you know, when, when you and I were working on the coins of the Ptolemaic uh, Empire Part 2, uh, three volume set, um, you'd mentioned to me, I, I guess, that it, this, is, this whole project had taken you about 30 years. Right. And what is it about the Ptolemies or the Ptolemaic dynasty that has interested you for that long and you keep coming back? Well, you know, I was not originally interested in it at all. This all came about because of one of those accidents that I mentioned. I was riding in a car on Mulholland Drive with my colleague, Eric McFadden, and he remarked, you know, there's only one major reference work of which we don't have a reprint, and that's Veronis. And I'm sure the reason is because the language is inaccessible to most people. How would you feel about translating the catalog? And I thought, oh, I can do that because Sphronos worked in a literary form of Greek. It was much closer to classical Greek than, than modern Greek is. And of course, the number of words used in a catalog like that is very, very limited. You probably only need 100 words. So I set out to do the translation. Uh, since it was only one of several projects I was working on, it took a few years. And at some points, I had to consult Basil Dimitriadi about words that I didn't understand. Um, and when it was done, by that time, Eric McFadden was no longer with my firm. He was, had started, he was a co-founder of uh, CNG, Classical Numismatic Group, and had moved to London. So I wrote to him, I said, well, the translation is finally ready. Do you guys want to publish it? No answer. 
<laughs> so eventually, it went. Ed Waddell requested that if he could put it up on his website, and he scanned the plates of Soromos. So it existed in some form. But meanwhile, uh, I'd realized that there were plenty of problems with Sroma's presentation, and some of them, but only some of them, could be fixed by uh, correcting them to conform to what more recent literature had found. So then I set out to write a series of articles, you know, attacking one problem at a time and trying to resolve it. That's what took the 40 years or the 30 years <laughs> most of the time. So you have this massive project um, and then you know, you had identified the issue about, I guess, making Zvronis' uh, text, which I guess was from 1904. Yeah. And I, I only translated the catalog, not his commentary. Okay. So, but that fits into what you were getting at with Coins of the Ptolemaic Empire, parts parts one and two, is is to be able to, you know, add to that commentary, add to the bibliography, add to the, the specimens, you know, mm-hmm. of... Uh, of, of the catalog and all of this. Um, so I, I guess, how did, with a project this massive, how did you know where to start? I mean, where did you, where did you begin? Oh, let's see. Did you, did you, did you, did you pick a Ptolemy and just go down that rabbit hole? And then when you finished with that Ptolemy, you went to you know the son or the cousin or whoever, or, or how, how did that work? No, how did you no, begin? I started looking at uh, Ptolemaic bronze hordes uh, and, got involved in that end of the uh, the project rather than, than a particular Ptolemy. I looked first at third century bronze hordes and then a horde that showed the transition from the third century coinage to the coinage that followed after the introduction of the bronze standard. Uh, this work came to the attention of Georges Le Reader, who informed Olivier Picard, who was very interested because he had the responsibility of publishing the coin finds from the excavations in Alexandria conducted by the Centre d'Etude Alexandrine. And of course, those were largely bronze coins. So he actually made a trip out to Los Angeles to meet me and talk about Ptolemaic bronze coins. Well, with, uh, yeah, with, with, with Picard, um, you know, we have a, a lovely um, frontispiece uh, in the historical introduction volume, um, you know, that's there for readers to enjoy uh, with him and his, his sword. Um, and then you've also dedicated, uh, you know, part two uh, to his memory. Yes. Uh, he passed earlier this year. And, and so I, I, was, I was curious about how involved Picard might have been, you know, with the research that you were doing. He did visit you in California. Did you ever return the favor? Did you visit him in, in, in Egypt? Or in uh, yes, he invited me to Egypt twice. Uh, the first time there was a terrorist incident and I didn't go. But the second time, which was already 2013, I did. Uh, his main involvement, he continued to write articles about Ptolemaic bronze coinage. But he uh, instructed his student, Thomas Fauché, to collaborate with me in trying to work out a classification of the second century bronze coinage. Uh, That was an enormously fruitful collaboration and a very valuable friendship. Thomas provided photos of all the Ptolemaic coins in, uh, in the BNF, except for the bronzes. Uh, he provided photos of the entire Paphos horde, which he and Julien Olivier republished. 
in classification of bronze coinage, uh, worked on a system that Olivier Picard had originally proposed of organizing the coinage into series. I think his thinking was somewhat archaeological that it would be good to define coins in a way that could be identified, even if their details were uh, not very easily readable. So he divided Ptolemaic bronze coinage into 10 series, but it fell to Thomas and me to sort of fill out the middle part of those 10 series. Yeah, so we, we've been talking a bit about, about bronze. Um, the, uh, the bigger of t- the two catalogs is, of course, precious metal. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you found your way to precious metal. Were, were, were these in separate hordes? Were these mixed in with bronze hordes? And then how did you begin to address uh, you know, the various questions that you might have had about the, uh, the Ptolemaic coinage that's in gold and silver? Oh, that's a good question, and I, I don't, don't have a ready answer for it. Um, certainly, certainly, I looked at coin hoards. I did not do much of the traditional thing of going to museums and recording what their holdings. Of course, I had all the photos that Thomas sent from uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, which is a large and important collection. You know, we've we've got the the division of the catalogs into into precious metal and bronze, and then the first volume is also the historic introduction, uh, which which does provide the context about you know, each of these individual um, Ptolemaic rulers, and you know one seems to inform the next. I mean, if you look at archaeological artifacts, you're you're looking at at, at these you know bits of history that are then you know providing you know evidence. Uh, you know that that you're you're writing about and you're referencing you know, in between these three volumes, and th- this is a lot of information to process. I mean, you know, as I've had the pleasure of going through the book several times now, and you know, it's 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 amazing to to just try to comprehend all of this material that you were up against um, in trying to synthesize this stuff, and and I'm wondering, you know, how how did you organize this or or, um, you know, when you were writing it, what kind of schedule to keep or how did you keep yourself disciplined? It's like, okay, we're going to be focusing on, on, on this hoard or these coins today. And, and then, you know, were you writing the catalog and the history simultaneously or did one come first? Uh, I'm just really interested about the process or the method as to how, much, how you approach this mountain material. I think it was fairly chaotic. Uh, I'll say in the, <laughs> in the first place that the heavy emphasis on history was triggered by Werner Hus who in 2001, out of the blue, because we'd had no previous contact, sent me a copy of his uh, Egyptian history, or Ptolemaic history, Egyptian in the Hellenistische Zeit. And he writes, uh, wrote a very simple German, lots of uh, rhetorical questions with answers to the questions, but ample uh, documentation, which is lacking from Gunter Hübel's book. So he gave me all the sources to track down. So I began by using mostly, I guess, skeet to sort of fill in the chronological developments known about each reign, and then pursued other topics in more detail as I came across articles and read about them. So it was not orderly. I think that's, you know, that's, that's fair. You know, having that kind of chaos can, I think, sometimes be you know, beneficial in one's research. You're not quite sure where you're going or what you're going to find, and then you can go into all kinds of different directions without this kind of bias. I was very fortunate that the UCLA Library 
has a magnificent collection or had a magnificent collection of sources on Egyptology. And so I went there every Saturday for years uh, and either read, read some things and took notes, Xerox mountains of other things. And so I came home, but it was random because I would go through, say, three volumes of uh, Revue d'Egyptologie and then process what I found in those, which might be on four or five different subjects. As, as your research progressed, you know, for, for over the course of, of 30 to 40 years, um, did you find yourself gravitating you know, towards more online resources? Did your workflow shift from being primarily you know, pen and paper to primarily, primarily digital or did it still, was it still a mix? Um, I definitely found the, the availability of online resources very helpful in the past few years, especially since UCLA decided that books were sort of obsolete and put them all in storage as much as it could. What were some of the digital resources that you used? Well, Chris Bennett's website was one. Um, Papyri.info was one. Um, the Packard Humanities Institute uh, Corpus of Inscriptions was another. I think those are the main ones. While you're while you're going through this, I have a couple of questions here. Um, we'll stick with the Ptolemies for 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 another moment. Um, when you're researching the history and the coins um, of these Ptolemaic rulers, did did you find yourself gravitating towards one or two rulers in particular, just because they were you know so darn interesting, or or you know, did did that not get in the way of the research? I tried to remain you know historically objective. Uh, I mean, I do tend to favor Ptolemy sixth and Ptolemy ninth as good rulers, but I tried tried not to be too judgmental until I got to Cleopatra the seventh, and then I couldn't help myself. Well, what what happened there? Well, I had done a lot of looking, uh, collecting of dedications in honor of the Ptolemies, and there these are enormously common. There are just slews and slews of them. Even to Ptolemy the Twelfth, whom we consider a bad ruler, they just dried up for Cleopatra the Seventh. Obviously, her subjects did not honor her in the same way as the previous rulers had been honored, and so that made me take a hard look at her tax policies and her policies uh, towards her Egyptian subjects, and uh, also the empty cartouches all over the place in the, in the temples that she was uh, credited with uh, redecorating. So I have a slightly different view of Cleopatra than most people do. When you say that she redecorated, um, I, what did you mean? You know, some of the listeners won't understand what that is. Well, the, the Ptolemies had a record of, of uh, building new temples, but more than that, they tended to enlarge or restore existing temples, and part of that might involve adding new uh, new reliefs in the new areas or replacing old reliefs with new ones in the older areas. With, uh, with, the, with the creation of, of Coins of the Ptolemaic Empire, Parts 1 and Parts 2, we had that break. Uh, we published Part 1 in 2018. We're publishing Part 2 in 2023. Um, why did you decide on, on the division as you did? Uh, was it just because of length, or did you get to the end of one logical section of research and you'd yet to begin the next? Or how did you make the decision about where to uh, divide the volumes? Uh, I think it makes sense both numismatically and historically. Uh, 
historically, with the uh, Fifth Syrian War, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire loses a big province and therefore a lot of mints. So the minting program was reorganized. Cyprus became more important. Uh, all the coinage from the former province of Syria and Phoenicia is now uh, concealed and hidden, sort of. Uh, it does exist, but it isn't immediately obvious. The other numismatic reason is the introduction, the demonetization of Ptolemy IV, which was a huge and incomprehensible event. Uh, and then the introduction of the bronze standard and new bronze types of bronze coinage. With, with uh, the coinage that you're investigating, the bronze and the precious metals, um, were, were both of these materials being stamped in, in similar ways, you know, so if you had bronze coins, you know, from Ptolemy V and precious metal coins from Ptolemy V, were they stamped with the same kinds of things, same monograms, mint marks, busts, iconography, or were they, were they different? And why might they have been different between, say, silver and gold and bronze? Okay. Uh, the iconography was different according to the metal. Uh, in the third century, there are often shared controls, which allow us to say that these bronzes were contemporary with these silver coins, or these silver coins were contemporary with these gold coins. Uh, in the second century, that all goes out the window. We have almost no controls. Uh, a lot of the coinage is unmarked, especially in the early period or the early decades of the second century. Then they go to a system of using dates on the silver coinage and on Cypriot gold coinage, uh, bronze is very rarely dated. Uh, why were the metals different? Or why was the coinage in different metals different? Uh, in 2010, uh, the University of Münster held a workshop called Bildwert. And I attempted to answer that question. It seemed that in the third century, gold was used for uh, mostly uh, promoting cultic messages, messages about royal cult. Silver had a very odd pattern. The, uh, the portrait of Ptolemy I, the dynastic founder, was frozen, and the living king was portrayed in, on silver coinage only if it was struck in newly conquered territory or territory recovered after a loss. Bronze coinage was reserved for the gods. Uh, in the second century, these patterns mostly persisted, except it becomes a little harder to explain the few uh, portraits of living kings on silver coinage, not entirely clear that they were struck because of recovered territory. You can find my attempts to answer those questions in the text. I, I, I can't recall you know, just how many you know, hundreds or thousands of coins you must have, have gone through or considered as you were you know, putting these books together. Um, what collections, where do they come from? Um, how do we have them here in the 21st century? Um, and, you know, are these all, a lot of them, you know, just online or in museum collections, auctions, or you know, private collections, or is it kind of all of the above? All, all, all of the above. Of and here I will mention that uh, a couple of collectors uh, made their collections available to me for, for silver, I want to mention in particular, Adam Philippides and Eric Carlin. Uh, if I'm forgetting anybody important, I apologize. But uh, I also have been fortunate in that uh, 
coin dealers and catalogers will contact me if they handle something that they think is unusual. Uh, and so a lot of those coins found their way into the corpus. Okay, you've been working with the Ptolemies for 30 to 40 years, and it seems like you needed a break at some point because you were also publishing on the coinages of, of other people's um, other empires, and I'm thinking specifically of the uh, Seleucids. Um, is it Seleucid or Seleucid? Um, or is it it's both. both. It's both. Okay. What, what do you prefer? I, I say Seleucid, but... Um... All right. Um, what drew you to the Seleucids? And did you find yourself taking a break to work on that project and then going back to the Ptolemies? Or were you kind of working on both simultaneously? Seleucids came first. I met Arthur Houghton when he was an assistant curator of antiquities at the Getty Museum. Uh, Arthur is a very benevolent person who loves to encourage young people in scholarship. And he thought he saw potential in me. Uh, and so one of the things he did was sell part of his collection, some very select coins, through numismatic fine arts, knowing that I would be cataloging them. And uh, he sent me all of his notes and a lot of uh, historical background materials to write commentaries about the coins. The auction was a big success. And after that, he said, you know, there really isn't an adequate publication of, of Seleucid coinage, let's explore the possibility of writing one together. So first we chose Alexander Zabinus as a, a small reign, probably fairly manageable as a test case. And we were satisfied with our, our work on that. So then we hit everything. And that, that project lasted from 1988 until 2002, when the first volume was published. And then we brought Oliver in to help with the second volume, which was published in 2008. By that time, I was also working on, on the Ptolemies, but the Seleucids came first. Um, did you find that your work on the Ptolemaic volumes uh, grew out of um, lessons learned from writing the Seleucid books? Uh, I adopted the same format for, for the catalog. Uh, and the, or the same practice of numbering uncertain mints so that people would have a way to refer to them that uh, was more or less precise. Uh, one, one, one way that the uh, Seleucid book influenced me, uh, Arthur did not want to have extensive historical background. And I now feel he was right because Seleucid history has such few and ambiguous uh, sources, really an awful lot of it is speculation and assumption. Uh, totally different situation from the Ptolemies where there are thousands of sources, uh, more than anybody can know and exploit at any given time. But that was part of the reason that I chose to go heavily into the history for the Ptolemies. I felt that all of that background could be relevant to understanding the coinage. Not necessarily, but you can't always tell where someone might make a connection that I had missed. Yeah, well, that's one of the benefits about writing you know, these kind of massive volumes. That, you, know, so you need to put that out there into the world. And, and the, the goal is to really have 
and I've had this argument with uh, some former professors as well, is, is, um, is the book a starting point for a discussion or is it the end point? <laughs> and, and sometimes it's both. You know, you reach, as a researcher, you reach the end of what you can provide. And so you publish it, you put it in the world, and then all of a sudden people take that up and they take it to the next step. And um, is that kind of what you're hoping for? You know, not just with the volumes, but with the Ptolemaic volumes. Too. Yeah, I think that's supposed to happen. Uh, uh, we definitely expressed that hope with this, the Seleucid book, and it did work. It stimulated a lot of research. Yeah, no, pe- people still ask about it, and they, they still get copies, uh, and they still come yeah. back to us, you know, for for more. So yes, yeah, yeah. but it's going to be it's going to be harder with the Ptolemies because. Not just myself, but Thomas Fauché and Julian Olivier, Eloise Omedra, Eric Carlin. So many people have produced so many dye studies now. There's not a whole lot left that hasn't been uh, studied in detail. So people will have to find some new approaches to studying Ptolemaic coinage in depth. And uh, speaking of, uh, of new studies, um... Are you planning on taking a break now that, now that the Coins of the Ptolemaic Empire project is finally finished? Or are you already starting on something new? Uh, it, it isn't a matter of starting new things so much, but taking up old projects that I never finished or you know, going further in one direction or another with the Ptolemies. So what's, uh, what's, what's next? What's, what's got your attention? Uh, what am I currently working on? Well, uh, a reissue of the Seleucus One chapter of SC and a reissue of the Seleucus second chapter, a, uh, a book chapter on the exile of Cleopatra II at the court of her daughter Cleopatra Thea, and how much Cleopatra II may have had to do with inciting Thea to rebel against her husband. There's a forthcoming book chapter on Cleopatra VII. All the Thessalian hordes that uh, I didn't manage to get published back in the day when I was working on them, but I still have all the materials. I still have all the pictures. Unfortunately, after all this time, you know, this was back in the days before digital photography. So I had actual prints and I cut out the coin photos and stuck them on plates, but now the glue has come right up and they're falling off. (laughs) So when I try to scan them, you know, half the coins fall off the plates and I have to reconstitute them. So that's a bit of a nuisance, but Maybe I'll get it done. Going back to the Seleucids and also to the to the Ptolemies and 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 uh, how you manage your own workflow, I, I was I was amazed, and I actually remain amazed at the amount of monograms uh, that <laughs> that appear on those pages, and the number of fonts that had to be created in order to display um, you know these monograms in you know text that was designed digitally. Uh, did, how did you approach putting the monograms into the volume? I mean, did you have to teach yourself how to code or teach yourself how to use certain software? Or were you working with somebody else, you know, to create these kinds of fonts so that the monograms would appear in the page? Uh, no, I did almost all of it myself. Uh, it started back in my cataloging days. I don't know how I learned about the font creation software Fontographer, but I got it and learned to use it in the most simple and basic way. I mean, the monograms that I drew are, they don't have serifs, they don't have heavier and lighter lines. So 
they don't take much advantage of the sophistication of the program, but they did the job. So I was creating monograms for numismatic fine arts auction catalogs and just, you know, began the library that way. Then when I started working on the Seleucids, I added Seleucid monograms. And uh, when I began working on the Ptolemies, I added Ptolemaic monograms, just some that already existed in the, in the library. With the fonts that you were creating, you know, I was, I was going through that list today um, and, you know, seeing things like, you know, the, the dual monograms or the, the, the trimonograms or the tetra or the penta or the hexa. And, and so uh, this is just me kind of nerding out on this technology. <laughs> What's the difference between, say, a penta monogram and a hexa monogram? Those are just names as I had yeah. to add fonts. I okay. just gave them names. All right, <laughs> there we go. Okay, so font set number five, font set number six, as you, yeah, that, as you were developing yeah. these things. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. It's it's an incredible piece of work. I think one day it would be great to kind of consolidate all of this into one single master Unicode font and then kind of put it out there in the world for people to use. Well, who um, do you think? Who do you think? I don't know if that? it's well. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think I got a couple of ideas. Oh, you have ideas. <laughs> go ahead. I have a couple of ideas. I'll I'll keep them uh, to myself for now. But but first, let me tell you that Oliver a... Oliver is the only other person of my acquaintance, yeah, who knows how to use photographer and does. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I remember having some back and forth with him early on. Uh, I think in the in the in part one, and uh, we've kind of had to bug each other to make sure that you know we were up to date with our version of photographer. Or we were having trouble, you know, recreating some of these, you know, some of these fonts or, or 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 some of these glyphs, and you know, just kind of the gnashing of teeth that went into this. But <laughs> you know, at the end, it was completely worth it. So, you know, being able to partner up and and uh, create something that combines all of these things uh, into kind of a master set, and then putting it out there in the world, I think, would be a, a good way forward and a, a benefit to this kind of scholarship. For your information. The Israelis asked me a long time ago for the fonts that I had at the time. I can't recall the date exactly, but at that point I was working on a Mac and generating uh, Mac-appropriate fonts, not, uh, not dual-platform fonts. So I sent them to Danny Sion, and he converted them to a PC-compatible platform. And then Israelis began adding fonts. Uh, characters they needed for their coin finds. So there's a completely different family descended from my fonts in use in Israel in, in um, archaeological publication. Wow. I, I'm, I'd be willing to bet that somewhere out there, there is a grant <laughs> that we can apply for to help fund, you know, the, the one or two people, you know, who will be able to go through and, and, and do these. Absolutely. That's completely worthwhile, and uh, I'm looking at you, Mellon Foundation. Um, but we'll, uh, yeah, or or the National Endowment of the Humanities Office mm-hmm. of Digital Humanities. I think that's something that they'd really go for. So, so um, yeah, anybody who's listening, <laughs> you've got connections or or an interest, uh, let me know, um, and we'll see what we can do. So, um, Kathy, is there is there anything else um, that you'd like to talk about? It's it, we've we've been going on for almost forty minutes now, and and uh, this has been a lovely discussion. So, is is there anything else that I've 
kind of missed or forgotten to ask or things that you wanted to mention? Nothing comes to mind. Uh, I've enjoyed it very much. I mean, thank you for your questions. Oh, sure, of course. Uh, but oh, that also reminds me, um, the people who have been listening um, and you know, you got a treat in your ears at the very beginning of the uh, podcast episode um, with the opera Ptolemyo. And oh, that um, reminds me. When, when we did want to go back to Ptolemy VI and why he was a good king. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. What you, you'd mentioned that Ptolemy VI was a good king, and I was just really curious as to, as to why you thought that. So, what made him great? Okay. First of all, the resilience. I mean, he had he had to recover from invasion of the country and being deposed uh, and responded with positive programs. Uh, and then he unbalanced the Seleucid Empire in, in Syria and Phoenicia with clever policies, invaded nearly, nearly took it back. Maybe that's not an adequate answer and maybe you will want to edit it out. No. <laughs> No, I think the answer is fine, and and uh, you know, being being good and, and almost accomplishing something is better than than being a terrible a, a terrible ruler, of course. Um, so you know, getting back to, to Ptolemyo and, and the opera, um, I, this is somewhat related, but but I gather you're an opera buff. Uh, yeah, classical music buff generally, but uh, very fond of yeah. Baroque opera in particular. Okay, of which Ptolemyo is one. Uh, of, of which Ptolemyo is one. It's a, an alternate story about Ptolemy the Ninth and his brother Ptolemy Alexander, who ends up uh, helping to restore him to the, th uh, to the throne of Egypt from Cyprus. Not too historically accurate, but, <laughs> but still, it's it's a good it's a it's a great listen. Um, so you'll 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 hear the end of this, uh, you know, in, in, in just another minute or so. But uh, you can find it on YouTube, or you can get it on a very expensive CD, as I understand it. Um, but streaming is always available. So uh, Kathy, thank you very much for your time, and thank you so much for these books on the Ptolemies and also on the Seleucids. Uh, it's just an amazing accomplishment. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the interview, and thank you for all you've done for my publications and for other publications oh. as well. <laughs> thank you so much. Happy to do it.